problem with uh, being so fixated on admin is uh, my wife doesn't share the same gift as me. And so pretty much on a daily basis... No, I was just going to say, pretty much on a daily basis, uh, she gets emails for me as I realise, oh, we've got this to do, and this to do, and this to do. Do you mind doing this, this, and this, and this? I don't know. She works for Emirates. She's a, a lawyer at Emirates, but I reckon she spends 40% of her time working for Emirates and 60% of her time working through my admin list. So <laughs> I'm not complaining. Stuff gets done. Anyway, uh, as Sajay said, my name is Matthew, I'm on staff here at Well of Life, and it's really wonderful to be able to come and share with you this morning. I don't know about you, but I've been really challenged as we've gone through this Holy Cow series, and I think, for me, one of the challenges that has come up again and again is this idea of, do I take God at his word? Am I prepared to trust what the Bible says? Now, uh, Maybe a little bit about me. My heart is, is probably naturally a kind of bleeding liberal leftist. That's the, that's the environment that I was raised in. That's what my parents sort of taught me to be. And so one of the challenges that I then have is that I'm having to constantly wrestle through, well, this is what my conscience would choose, but this is what the Word of God says. And so there has to be this constant sort of realigning of, okay, that's fine if that's what my conscience says. But the word of God is eternal. The word of God is universal. The word of God has a power to speak into any and every situation. And so it doesn't matter how I was raised. It doesn't matter what my natural inclination may be. If it's not in alignment with the word of God, then I'm the one who needs to change, not the word of God. And so today I want us to look at three big topics. And obviously you're, you're going to be thinking, why are we cramming such big topics into one preach, and I hope that we'll see that actually there's this thread that goes through them, and it's a thread that uh, Nicola picked up, and it's a thread that uh, got picked up in the worship, this idea of freedom, this idea that we were created to be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You know, this idea that the Christian walk, the Christian life is meant to be a life of fullness. It's meant to be a life where we're constantly being molded and discipled and matured and shaped into the image of Christ. And one of the key components of that is freedom. So today we're going to be uh, studying or kind of exploring the topics of drinking, drugs, and porn. At the heart of all three of these is this single rotten root. This idea that says, as long as it's legal, it's okay. The world has taken to defining morality based on whether it actually affects or hurts someone else. And that becomes then this real problem. You know, this idea that, well, if it's done in private, you know, what I do in the secrecy of my home, it doesn't affect my neighbor. It doesn't affect anyone else. Therefore, it's not immoral. And this is the untouchable idea. This is the holy cow that we're looking at. This idea that morality can be defined by us as humans. That morality could be defined based on this idea of, does it hurt someone else? Does it have consequences for someone else? When we actually know that as Christians, our morality is not set by what we do. But our morality is set by who God is. 
Morality does not make any sense if we define it by us as humans. Because what may be right in one culture is going to be completely different in another culture. You know, let's just take the example of multiple wives. You know, where I come from in England, it's not right to have multiple wives. Here in the Middle East, this is a practice that is common. So if we see our morality based on, well, is it hurting people around us? Does it have an effect around us? Then that morality changes depending on the location that I find myself in. But if we assess morality based on the character and the nature of who God is, then we see this universal standard. We see this universal plumb line, this universal bar, which everything has to be assessed. Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, highlights this point. He says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not anything is constructive. The Greek word here for constructive is the word okidomio. It's not one of those words that naturally rolls off the tongue. You can't really imagine people using it in sentences. But actually, it's a really uh, powerful word. There's a lot of truth in there. If you were to kind of translate it into its kind of literal English meaning, it means to build a house, to erect a building, to restore, to repair, to renew, to found, to establish. And so the picture that Paul is building is this idea of this master builder who is selecting the best tools, the best resources necessary to build the building. And so that is our criteria. Are the things that we're putting in our life, are the things that we're choosing to do, are they building us up? Are they restoring us? Are they repairing us? Are they helping us to become the person that God has called us to be? Paul, writing in Ephesians, he talks about that we are being built up into the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So if we take that as truth, and then we look at the things that we do in our life, and this idea that they all build into us, they all um, construct, then we have this kind of uh, thing to wrestle through. Is what I'm doing, are the activities I'm choosing, are they building me up? Are they restoring me? Are they repairing me? Are they helping me lay a firm foundation? In your life then, the things that we need to be looking at as being beneficial or being constructive need to be assessed physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's only then do we start to see the will of God. And so if that is the case, then the the question as Christians, we need to be asking ourselves is not how close to the line can I get, not what I can get away with, but what was I created for? What was I meant to be? What is it that the God of the universe who perfectly formed me together in my mother's womb, what was it that he intended for me? Because only when we ask that question are we then able to assess the different uh, actions or the different things that we may participate in? So let's explore this idea a bit further. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 13. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. It says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Let's just hold on for a moment. I mean, isn't that powerful? 
Doesn't that change the whole argument that what we're called to be, the people that we're created to be, is not just about what's beneficial to me, but it's about how we love our neighbor. It's about how we love uh, those around us. So suddenly this argument of, well, I do it in private, you know, and it may not have any consequence, suddenly doesn't work anymore because our actions have direct implications to those around us. The argument changes. Verse 16 So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are all in conflict with each other, so that you you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul doesn't pack any punches here. You know, it's not like, oh, what is Paul saying? I mean, it's pretty clear. If our lives are full of these things, then we do not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Wow. We were created. We were created to be free. We were created to be people who walk by the Spirit, who sees where the Spirit goes and follows in that direction. We were created to be people who do not indulge the flesh. We were created to be people who look out for our neighbor and base our actions and our judgment on those, on what is going to affect those around us. We were created to be people of God, to be the ambassadors of God to be the children, the sons, the daughters of the king here on earth. That needs to be our criteria. That needs to be the bar when we're assessing everything that we're doing in our life. So when we come to look at things like drinking and drugs and pornography, this needs to be the criteria. This needs to be the assessment. This needs to be the line in which everything else is marked against. Okay, so let's now look at some practical examples. Let's look at drinking. Uh, It may be surprising to you, but there are loads of uh, verses throughout the Bible that focus on drinking, that talk about wine, that talk about beer. Uh, So far, I've not found any that seems to be focused on Jägermeister, but I'm sure if you look hard enough, there's some in there. And there is this real sense of positivity when it comes to wine. It's seen as a sense of God's provision. You know, one of the pictures of heaven is this great banquet feast on Mount Zion with this endless uh, supply of food and wine. You know, it was Jesus' first miracle. You know, his first miracle wasn't healing someone. It wasn't raising someone from the dead. It wasn't restoring from someone. It was making a buttload of wine for a party when the wine had run out. I mean, you cannot say that Jesus did not like wine. I mean, that's just a fact. But at the same time, we then see these other scriptures that that seem to paint a warning, that seem to paint wine and alcohol in not the best light. So let's take a look at a few of these. 
Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Then we have Psalm 104, verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human heart, oil that makes their faces shine, and bread that sustains their heart. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So what's, what's the idea then? Is, is God confused? Is he kind of writing in one context and then writing something different over there? Well, well, no, because we've said that his morality, that his standards are universal. So what was true at one time in one place, therefore has to be true for us. So what we see then when we start to wrestle through with this is that the Bible draws a very specific line. And that line that the Bible draws is about being drunk. It's about being at that point where you become so intoxicated that you lose the ability to control yourself, that you lose your judgment, that you give up of yourself. Okay, time for some science now. So what I need everyone to do is is I need everyone to put their super geeky science glasses on. I'm going to do one hand. Okay, come on, everyone. I'm not going to carry on preaching to everyone that super geeky science glasses. We have to be super seeky scientists. Exactly. Oh, this is an amazing picture. I don't know why this picture is not on the front of our website. Actually, we probably won't get any new visitors. Sorry for the new people. We don't do this every week. I promise. Anyway, time for the science. So in the brain, there is a chemical called dopamine. And it basically functions as a neurotransmitter. Now, a neurotransmitter, to put it another way, is like a WhatsApp, a WhatsApp message with an attachment. So it sends it all over the brain. Now, most types of rewards increase the level of dopamine in the brain. And many addictive drugs then also artificially increase that. The brain includes several distinct dopamine pathways, one of which places major reward in this uh, sorry, there's a major role in a reward motivation factor. You may have heard this. So basically, in a very simplified way, science has shown that drinking alcohol helps um, the release of dopamine, and it releases it in that part of the brain that makes you feel good. So when you ask people, well, why do they drink? They'll generally say things like, oh, it's because it helps me relax, or it helps me feel good, or it helps me you know, wind down after a long day. It's not actually the alcohol per se that's doing that. It's the dopamine release in your brain that's traveling over into the reward path. Now, the reason why God has designed us like this is that it's a really helpful thing. The the, the primary purpose for that is it rewards our body when we do something good, when we do something healthy. So not me, but my wife uh, two, three weeks ago ran the Dubai Marathon in an amazing time of four hours, 20 Something like that, yeah. I uh, unfortunately had to leave church, so I couldn't have joined her. Otherwise, I was going to be right there, four hours, 15. And several days. But anyway, why do people run? I mean, think about it. That is a ridiculous thing to do. I mean, was it 26.2 miles and, I don't know, kilometers, I'm British. 1,000 and... 
12 kilometers or something like that. I don't know the equation. Why do people do that? They do it because they, if they make, it makes them feel good. At the end of it, you, you, know, you have this thing called the runner's high. And it's because your brain is fl uh, being flooded with dopamine. When you work out, when you exercise, you feel good afterwards because your brain is being flooded with dopamine. But it's not just physical exercise. It's things like when you provide for your family, when you kind of seek and, and look to find shelter, when you provide food, when you eat, when you drink, your body rewards you with dopamine. And it's a natural thing that God has given us to make sure that we're seeking shelter, that we're seeking food, that we're seeking water, that we're looking after our family. The problem with something like drinking is it hijacks that God-given gift, that God-given design in our brain, and it starts using it artificially. It starts using it for self-gratification. I think what's so interesting is so many of the gifts of God are just like that. You know, God has created them for our best. God has created them in a way that helps us live a full and sustained life. And then what do we do as sinful humanity? We find a way to hijack it. We find a way to try and get that same effect, that same benefit, but outside of the boundaries that God has created. And so the problem is then that when you start drinking heavily, the brain releases so much dopamine. Not only do you get that sudden feel-good rush, but it then starts shutting off the parts of your brain that helps you make decisions. How many people, and I, this is not a show of hands here, how many people have ever gone streaking sober? Nobody. Nobody is sitting at home one day having a nice cup of tea. You go, you know what I need to do? I need to take off all my clothes and run down the street. That decision, that thought process has never, ever happened, I guarantee you. But when you're drunk and you've had a couple of drinks, I know what makes sense. Let me take off all my clothes and go running. This is the greatest idea ever. It is particularly not good in the world of Facebook and the world of YouTube. But that mistake, that momentary bad decision, will live on for eternity online. And so that's the problem, is that dopamine shuts down this part of your brain. It shuts down the, the part that says, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. And so it starts leading to stupid and damaging behavior. And then when you take it one step further, when you continue drinking, Dopamine is shown to cause anxiety, fear, a loss of reality. So the big problem here is that with drinking, we're hijacking the science that God has made our brain. We're hijacking the natural process of how God has designed us. And so it leads to risky sexual behavior, senseless crime, fights or other types of violence, absurdly inappropriate comments to friends. We've all been at that Christmas meal where Uncle Bob has had just that little bit too much to drink and he starts going, you know what? And he just starts spruing this kind of racist rubbish or whatever. That is Uncle Bob's fault. But it's also the rush of dopamine in his brain that's... that's uh, uh, trying to, you know, that natural part we're going, shut up now, Bob, shut up now, Bob, you do not want to say that, has been silenced. It causes us to start experimenting with other risky behaviours. It starts us to have that, that superhero mentality. There was a, um, an anti-drink uh, advert in the UK, and it was uh, this guy, he 
uh, come out of a nightclub, was quite clearly drunk, and, and, it, and it showed you through his, his lenses, his eyes. And he was suddenly in this Superman uh, cape, and this girl had kind of let go of a balloon, so he started climbing up the scaffolding, and he kind of went to go reach the balloon, and suddenly it, uh, the, the commercial cut, and you saw him normally, and he jumped off the, um, the scaffolding, hit the ground and died. Now, obviously, that is a shocking advert. That is designed to kind of show you the worst-case scenario. You know, every time you have one too many wine coolers, that's not going to be the consequences. But when it's pushed to its nth degree, that can be. Okay, so what about now the thing of, well, I can handle my drink. I know where my limit is. I know where the boundary is. I think first and most importantly, God has not called us to see how close to the line we can get. A couple of weeks ago, um, we did the sex and pizza night, and we were looking at sexuality. And again, one of the things, and one of the questions that comes up is, you know, well, where's the line? Is it right to do this? Is it right to do that? And I think there's something in humanity, there's something in us that, that, that constantly wants to see how close to the line can we get? Whereas actually, what Scripture tells us, you know, Paul tells us that we are to flee from that which is sinful. We're not, try, we're not called to live on the line. We're called to live in the safe, green pastures that God has created for us. I think the other important Scripture is, so First Peter chapter 4, 7 says this, The end of all things is there. Therefore, be alert and sober mind so that you may pray. In other words, we need to be making sure that we're living our lives in the fullness that Christ has. And if we're constantly drunk, if we're constantly hungover, if we're constantly in a place where, you know, we're not making these, these, these decisions, we're not living the fullness. We're not able to partake in all that God has. We're not able to discern what the Spirit is saying and respond. I think secondly, how does your drinking affect those around you? Paul challenges the church in Corinth with this. He says, be careful, however, with the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, while he's dealing specifically with the uh, context of food sacrificed to idols, I think the same precedent, the same mandate applies to us. If anything that we do in our freedom has an effect on those around us and causes them to sin, then we ourselves are sinning. I uh, spent four years working for the Salvation Army in America. And as you may, may know uh, or may not know, the Salvation Army doesn't drink at all. So part of their membership covenant, part of the thing that you say when you, when you choose to join the Salvation Army is that you give up alcohol. And the reason why was 150 years ago when the Salvation Army was formed in the back streets of London, the majority of the people they were dealing with were alcoholics. And ever since then, the Salvation Army has had this real mission to go out and seek those that society rejects. So they run um, ARC centers, alcohol rehab centers, and drug rehab centers. And so as a result, because so much of their ministry is focused on those dealing with alcohol problems, they've made a decision as a denomination, as a church, to say, we're not going to drink. Because even if it's just a glass of wine, even if it's perfectly safe and perfectly biblical, if that then causes a problem for those that we're ministering to, if that causes a, a, an issue in our witness, then we don't want to be those people. 
Now, the Salvation Army is only one example. And I I want this to be clear. That's not what I'm necessarily advocating uh, this morning. But if you have people in your family who are struggling with drinking, if there are people in your life group, if there are people in your community, if there are people that you're around, is it not better for you to sacrifice something to help others live in freedom than potentially do something that could ensnare and enslave them? But again, I want to make it clear. Wine is seen as a gift from God. Wine is seen as part of God's provision. And so we are not calling for total abstinence. That's not the message. But we're calling for living a life that is Christ-centered, that is based on the morality that we see in the nature and the character of God, that realizes the science behind addiction, the science behind what happens, but ultimately, a life that means freedom for us and a life that glorifies the Lord. So drugs. A lot of what I've said about uh, drinking actually applies to weed as well. Uh, But you may be thinking, well, drugs aren't legal, so why is it in the same category as this? 26 countries now have some form of legalized marijuana. In America, it's now legal in four states for recreational use. It's decriminalized in a further 14 states. And more and more countries are starting to look at marijuana again. They're starting to look at either decriminalizing it or legalizing it for medical reasons or or legalizing it for recreational use. Now, again, I want to be quite clear. I think the whole argument over medical, uh, medical marijuana is a different argument. You know, in the same way that certain painkillers that can be prescribed are opiates based, you know, there is a, uh, a wrestling that needs to take place in the church about that. And that's another conversation for another time. What we're talking about today is personal use and this idea of, you know, personal, uh, as, as an individual choosing to get high, choosing to escape reality. So despite the growing legalization of marijuana, the fact is the same issues we discussed with alcohol have also been discovered. It's also been shown that when you smoke weed, that massive rush of dopamine affects your brain. And that reward a benefit uh, pathway that we talked about is activated. And so suddenly again, that same idea of, it, of addiction turns up. That same idea of it shutting down the, the parts of your brain that help you make good choices is there. Now, while the Bible doesn't talk directly about weed, it doesn't directly talk about marijuana, I think you could make a very strong argument that there's a biblical precedent in the same way that it talks about alcohol. Because fundamentally, what they both are focused on is intoxication. They both alter our perception of reality. They both alter the fact of how we see the world and impair our ability to do certain activities. And so as a result then, Whatever we say about alcohol, we need to say about weed. It comes down to this brain issue. It comes down to this idea of things hijacking what God naturally made, of changing the boundaries that God had naturally placed for what's good for us and seeing it for our own self-benefit. And so finally, pornography. And again, It's a brain issue. I just want to show you this short video that's going to hopefully explain it in a little bit more detail. Computer had ever done. Simulate one whole second of human brain activity. How long did it take the computer to accomplish the task? 40 minutes. 
That might seem like a long time if, like most of us, one second of brain activity amounts to something like, I want a sandwich. But your brain transmits more messages than all the phone calls across the world, sifting through a non-stop flow of input from the eyes, ears, and other senses, even if you're just making a sandwich. Consider the brain. 50 billion neurons, a trillion glial cells, four miles of blood vessels, all dedicated to making an enjoyable life possible for you. Need food, shelter, and sleep? Your brain is designed to go after whatever it takes to survive. Your brain is also wired for companionship, with neurochemicals released in response to intimacy. Even if you're alone, staring at pornographic images on a screen. In that moment, the brain's powerful machinery kicks into gear, bonding us in different ways to images on the screen. Studies show that over time, many can develop a compulsion to pornography, causing them to need more of it, more often, and more hardcore versions just to feel normal. Just like with mood-altering drugs, the amazing brain, in other words, can be hijacked. Image after image, your expectations of sex, love, and relationships can evolve, with your own sexual preferences changing dramatically as you continue to seek out more shocking content. No surprise, then, that in comparison, people and activities you used to really care about seem less interesting. The good news is that the same processes that shape the brain in one direction can shape it in another. Hundreds of research studies prove that brain pathways can move in healthier directions. That's true for all of us, and there are lots of ways to help that happen. The only question that remains is what pathways you'll choose for yourself. So choose reality, choose love. You were born with a machine in your head more powerful than the world's fastest computer, your brain. Take care of it. It was made to take care of you. Isn't God's creation amazing? I mean, when you really stop to think about it, when you see, you know, that's just one a part of the brain, that's just one of its roles, it's like, whoa, God is amazing. A recent study has found that watching porn releases the same amount of dopamine as taking cocaine. So in the same but different way, then porn links exactly of how we've been talking about drinking and drugs. It can lower our inhibitions, causing us to engage in other risky sexual behavior. But maybe even more dangerously, it can cause these, these pathways of addiction. It can cause these pathways of where we become bound, where we find ourselves in bondage. The problem is your brain begins to crave the release of these dopamine. It's like kids being addicted to sugar. Have you ever seen it at, um, like at a kid's birthday party and you have that one kid who's always kind of, you know, crazy and he's kind of running over like, kind of eating as much cake as he possibly can. That was me as a kid, by the way. That was, that, was, that was me. You know, that sugar addiction kind of caused you to do stupid things, well, at least as a kid. Anyway, let's not go there. But that's what happens with pornography, is that we start craving that dopamine. We start craving that release. And so then what our brain is it's so flooded with dopamine, it starts to shut down the receptors. It starts to shut down the things that receive those messages because it needs to control it. So then you're craving that same level. So then you're having to seek harder and harder stuff to get the same effect. And so it becomes this vicious cycle. What started maybe as something quite innocent and quite vanilla and quite mundane 
over time can lead you into such a place of darkness, such a place of bondage, because your brain, your mind is craving more and more. Describing porn's effect to a US Senate committee, Dr. Jeffrey Satanova said this, it is as though we have devised a form of heroin a hundred times more powerful than before, usable in the privacy of one's own home and injected directly to the brain through the eyes. It's amazing then that given the scientific evidence that there's not more of an outcry, I think uh, quite aptly there's uh, one of the big anti-porn um, charities or, or campaigns in America is called Fight the New Drug because that's what it is. It is a drug. It is messing with your internal wiring. It's messing with your chemistry. It's destroying the things that God has created for you. And the problem is you then carry that over into your marriage. You then carry, carry that over into your other relationships. You can't segment your brain. You can't just put that little porn section in a box and not expect it to affect everything else. So even without considering the spiritual impact, we see there is this real problem here. Remember the scripture that we read of Galatians chapter 5? Let's just go back to it, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. There is this battle between flesh and spirit. The word flesh always leads, sorry, flesh always leads us uh, to sexual immorality. That's just a fact. That's just a state. Interestingly, um, the word pornography actually derives from the same Greek word of sexual immorality. And so we see why it's so attractive. We see why people are drawn in because there's something inherent in our fallen state, in our fallen corrupted flesh that naturally is trying to seek the things that aren't of God. But we need to take that battle seriously. We need to see that that's what it is, that it's a war. We need, so therefore, we need to prepare ourselves. We need to arm ourselves. We need to be able to fight. The warning that Paul has for us is clear then, that porn is against the spirit and actively wages war against us. I think part of the problem is that the world is constantly trying to normalize it. The world is constantly trying to say, oh, it's just the things that guys does. And so by lowering the bar so low, by lowering that expectation, we have a whole generation of people growing up going, this is the norm. And actually what God is asking, what the church is saying, is actually something different. And we need to be prepared to shout in love and kindness a thousand times, no, that's not the norm. That's not what God has created for you. That's not what God has designed for you. He has designed for you to live a life of so much more. Don't sell out to this. And so this is the problem with drinking, with drugs, with porn, is they offer us cheap imitations. They offer us quick fixes. They offer us ways to try and feel good that are outside of God's plan. And we start to see the effects of society. Marriage and families have been destroyed as a result of all three of these. 
the exploitation of women, of human trafficking, trying to feed this growing porn industry. Those who are selling drugs, maybe not that individual, but up the chain are often linked to organized crime in some form or the other. And finally, whether your children see it or not, when you engage in something that is against the will of God, you are inviting things into your house. You are inviting strongholds. You're inviting bondage. And it will affect your wife and it will affect your children. That is just a reality. The consequences are severe. We cannot say for any single one of these, well, it's okay, it's just me. No one else gets hurt. So what happens when we mess up? What happens when, as a Christian, we fall uh, victim? Or, and I think victim's an interesting word because we are both uh, victims of it, of the onslaught, but we are also perpetrators of this sin as well. So first off, our legal standing with God is unchanged. This is a really important point. Again, this is kind of what Nicola was saying earlier. Romans 8 verse 1 to 2 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I want to say this very clearly this morning. If you are a Christian and you're caught up in one of these things that we've talked about, your salvation is secure. God still loves you. God still sees you as a child of his. God still wants the best for you. The problem is, though, our fellowship with God gets disrupted. And suddenly that peace, that assurance, that certainty, those, those fruit of the spirits disappears. Hebrews 12 says this. If you struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as father addresses his son? It says... My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as son. If you're battling with one of these and you're feeling um, disconnected from God or, you know, starting to see God as being this other, that's actually God's discipline. That's God saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I want to restore you back into the place that, I was, that you were created to be. Leave this sin. Leave this bondage. Break these strongholds and come and dwell once again as son and father, as king and child. You know, it's the story of the prodigal son. You know, he goes and wanders off. He gets caught up in all kinds of rubbish of the world. He feels disconnected from his father. He's no longer in his father's presence. But as soon as he turns around and starts running towards him, the father is running as well. God this morning is wanting to run towards you. God this morning is wanting to greet you with open arms. God this morning is wanting to build you up. He's wanting to restore you. He's wanting to redeem you. He's wanting to break every single one of these things off your life. But what he's looking for is a son and a daughter. He's prepared to turn around and start heading towards him. 
So how do I get free? How do I break this devastating cycle of addiction? I think there's four ways. The first one is acknowledge. You need to admit that there is a problem. You need to stop rationalizing your sin, stop saying, well, other people are doing it, or it's really not that bad. The problem when we rationalize sin is it starts hardening our heart. It starts making our heart less receptive to what the Spirit is saying. As John Piper puts it, the key to freedom is depending on grace. The key to freedom is God's rescuing and caring exertion in our lives here and now. We are free when God freely comes and helps us and we joyfully trust his help instead of turning the yoke of the law. The first thing we need to do is acknowledge the situation that we're in. The second one is confess. You need to confess your sin to someone else. I know this, uh, you know, you may go, well, I've confessed it to God. But James actually reminds us, James chapter 5, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I think one of the uh, great tricks that the devil um, does to us but, uh, when it comes to addiction or anything is he fills us with so much shame and so much condemnation that we're not able to kind of utter out our sin. But as soon as we take that first step, As soon as we're prepared to go and say, this is my sin, and confess it to a brother or sister, it's amazing how much gets broken off. The devil wants you to stay trapped. The devil wants you to go hide in a corner, covered in shame and darkness. And Christ is calling us to come out into light. And that's why James encourages us to confess our sins to one another, because there's power in that. There's release that takes place in that. The third one is to be accountable. In a way, even when we are free, we still need that accountability. We will fail. We're human. We're fleshly people. There are times that we will have amazing victories. And there are times that we will fail. But when we are accountable to each other and accountable to God, we journey together. The Christian life was never designed for a life of isolation. We were never meant to be lone rangers. We were never meant to be people going off by ourselves and dealing with everything. We were people who were built for community. We were people who were built to be brothers and sisters who carry each other's burdens. Because when we do that, it's a picture of how God carries our burdens as well, of how we were in fellowship, of how we were in community with the Trinity. Finally, worship. I'm going to ask the the band to come up now. Worship is at the heart of God. If you think of um, a dirty coffee cup, you know, or a cup that's full of coffee, when you start uh, pouring water in, it starts pushing the coffee out. And if you leave it running long enough underneath that tap, suddenly all the coffee is expelled and you have that clean, clear water. And that's what worship does for us. When we start worshipping God, when we start allowing God to come and meet with us, when we start allowing his spirit to be poured out in us, there is then no room for that which is dark. There is then no room for that which is sinful. There is then no room for anything that is not of him. 
Worship is one of the most powerful spiritual weapons we have. Worship can transform atmospheres. It can change realities. It can bring freedom to people. So when we worship, suddenly we start to see God is present in this situation. As John Piper puts it, but whatever you do, find a God-centered Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and live for it and die for it and you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life.